0: Hey everybody, Jonathan Doyle, with you once again. Welcome aboard, friends, to the next installment of the Supply Side Podcast. Thank you for trusting us with your time. Hope we can bring you some real value in this episode. Listen, this is a great long-form discussion with Tom Giovanetti, who's currently the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation in the United States. This is a really deep dive discussion on a whole bunch of the issues that are shaping, I guess, global macro finance, the relationships between governments and individuals, governments and private enterprise. We talk taxation, we talk innovation, we talk stable money, we talk gold standards. And uh, Tom also shares with us his personal experience of having met Jude Wininsky, who famously wrote the way the world works so Tom's depth of knowledge his research is quite extraordinary and on the uh, IPI website they really are putting out some great material that's worth reading on a weekly basis so at the end of this discussion I'll touch base with you again and give you some links to go and check out uh, the Institute for Policy Innovation but I really do hope you enjoy this it's uh, I learned a great deal I think uh, Tom's wisdom and what he shares with us are really going to be thought-provoking. It is such a tumultuous time at the moment. As I record this in the studio, we're uh, facing another sort of round of COVID lockdowns that are going to have huge impacts on our business community. So, of course... If you are interested in finance, if you are interested in stable societies, if you're interested in the relationship between governments, citizens and businesses, then this is going to be something you're going to get a great deal out of in these challenging times. So let's do it, huh? Let's jump in. Welcome aboard to the next installment, the next episode of the Supply Side Podcast with our very special guest, Tom Giovanetti from the Institute for Policy Innovation. So Tom Giovanetti from IPI, thanks so much for making time to join us on the Supply Side podcast.
1: Oh, I'm delighted, thank you for having me.
0: Well, we had a great chat before we started and hopefully we're gonna revisit some of that. And uh, what I wanted to ask you first, what I was interested in was was hearing a little bit about your journey into this vast great realm of political economy, economics itself, uh, all the different theories that have shaped the age. Of all the things you could have done in life, tell us a little bit about the journey into uh, the path that you've taken.
1: Well, you know, it, it's an interesting question because my training is not in political science or economics or anything like that. My my background is all in theology and philosophy. So I have I have I have lived my my college and my graduate school life in the world of ideas and, and in, in thinking, trying, at least attempting to think sort of high thoughts, but I was always interested in, in policy and political science, just sort of as an aside. And I had a, I wrote some op-eds for the, for the newspaper here in Dallas, Texas, the Dallas Morning News. And I came to the attention of a, of a sort of a startup think tank in the area called the Institute for Policy Innovation. And so I think by a very odd Strange circuitous route. I ended up exactly in the field that I sh- should always have been in, which is in this world of ideas and political philosophy and economic philosophy. But I-, I do end up being self-taught in many ways for that reason, because I, you know, I'm one of those strange people who never took a college economics course, but I've actually taught economics courses. <laughs> so, so, so it's it's a uh, it's it's a little strange, but. I, uh, I I consider myself extremely fortunate to have been given the opportunities that I have and to have been around the people that I've been around, very influential people, some of the key sort of people in the Reagan administration, the whole supply-side revolution and the tax cuts of the 1980s and the incredible economic growth spurt and all of those things. And this remains one of my concerns is that somehow... We seem to have lost a lot of those lessons, and I'm I'm sort of dedicated to making sure that those lessons are perpetuated and that we 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 continue to understand. You know, as as our as our mutual friend Jude Wininsky said, the way the world works.
0: Now you met him several times. What do you remember?
1: Oh, Jude was a fascinating guy. Yeah, you would. Um, I spent many hours in his home in Morristown, New Jersey. You would hop on the train in Washington D.C. and go up to New Jersey and he would be waiting for you at the train station. His office was out of his home and uh, you know Jude also was not a trained economist. Jude was a journalist, but he was brilliant and he had a remarkable ability to synthesize ideas and to to take ideas from from a variety of sources and synthesize them. And Jude just Jude was just honestly a a, a brilliant open-minded human being. He was very, very open-minded, maybe too open-minded.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I read, um, yesterday I read Cedric Muhammad's sort of yes. eulogy for him, somebody sent me, and there was, yeah, there was that question about the relationship with, uh, you know, with the Nation of Islam and that sort of stuff.
1: He got he got involved in, late in life with uh, with Louis Farrakhan, who's really a, an objectionable human being. But, you know, Jude Jude was very, he was very ecumenical in the sense that anyone who was open to his ideas, ideas, he, he was happy to engage with. And I think the fact that Jude was so open to ideas was that probably part of the key to his ability to synthesize ideas. He didn't really, you know, he didn't start off with a, with a refusal to consider almost any idea.
0: You mentioned a moment ago that you have this great fascination with ideas. You were fascinated by the supply-side revolution of the Reagan era. When you think about Jude's corpus of work, his his sort of meta-theses. How would you describe what you see as the key aspects of supply-side, and what can they offer this particular moment in history?
1: So, Jude, one of the things that I really took from Jude, which was fascinating, was Jude understood that there was a significant difference between politics and economics, and in his view, political questions should be settled in the political realm, like questions like, what should be the size of government? How much money should government spend? How big should the welfare state be? In, in his mind, those were all questions that should be decided through democracy and through politics, and he wasn't terribly interested in those things. I mean, he had, he had opinions. But in his view, that was the world of politics. But he considered economics, especially supply-side economics, to be settled science. He really felt like however, much, however big the government's going to be, however much revenue the government needs to raise those are political decisions but how to raise it should be settled science he really felt very strongly that you know neo you know what we, what you and i are calling supply side economics today which is really sort of neoclassical economics right mm-hmm. it's like a return to pre-keynesian economics he really felt like that was settled science that it was just empirical and if you were a democrat If you were a progressive, if you really wanted a large welfare state and if you wanted a big government, that's fine. But the way to raise the revenue for that big government was to embrace supply-side economics, right? In other words, Jude felt like no matter how progressive your politics, you should still believe in low tax rates Mm -hmm. because ironically, that's the way to raise a lot of government revenue and you know for those of us on the right for those of us who believe in a small government and a limited government this has always been a bit of a of a funny juxtaposition of issues because if you if if the government really does embrace supply side economics and low taxes and low regulations that is a recipe for actually raising more money so if you believe in limited government do you want the government to actually raise more money i mean it's kind of it's kind of comical, but Jude really saw a distinction between politics and economics. He considered economics to be empirical and settled, and politics to, to always be an open question.
0: At the moment, it seems we're in this kind of vast monetarist experiment, right, which is kind of constantly changing, constantly tinkering. And I was talking to somebody here last night over, over a couple of drinks, and I was saying that if you look at the level of tinkering that's happened since going off the gold standard and the constant interventions in fiscal and monetary policy. And then we see, you know, the inflation of the seventies and eighties, we see the Asian financial crisis, the, the dot-com bubble, the 2008, I guess what I'm asking is if Jude saw these fixed laws operating in the economic world, are they essentially being ignored?
1: Well, I think so. And I think he would think so. You know, Jude, like most sound neoclassical thinkers, did believe in the gold standard. But one of the last conversations I had with Jude was really interesting. It was along the lines of, we don't have to have a gold standard, but we ought to have some kind of standard. In other words, the the currency should be tied to something real and he felt like we had gotten so far away from the gold standard that it was probably impossible to ever return to it. Our goal should be to return to some kind of a standard, like a basket of commodities. So Jude would have been completely happy with the value of the dollar tied to some sort of an index, you know, gold, oil, corn, wheat, pork bellies, natural gas, platinum, you know, just some sort of an index that you would create. And he he, he called it a basket of commodities. But the idea is it ought to be tied to something real. It ought not be just arbitrary, you know, at the whim of the of the Federal Reserve. And Jude was not a monetarist like like Milton Friedman. But of course, you know, Jude's, Jude saw wisdom in almost everyone's work. Jude saw wisdom in Keynes's work. Jude saw wisdom in, in in a lot of Marx's analysis. He thought Marx really did a great job of sort of understanding sort of the tension in capitalism, just that Marx came up with the wrong prescriptions. So, you know, Jude's argument was, if you had sound money, and by definition, sound money has to be tied to something real. Mm -hmm. It almost doesn't matter what it is. But if you had sound money, then you could actually do what Milton Friedman jokingly suggested, was, you know, Milton Friedman said that the entire job of the Federal Reserve could be done by one computer sitting on a table, right? Because all it would have to do is keep the money supply Consistent, right? And 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 Jude's point was, if if it was tied to something real, then you could do that. Then you could keep the money supply uh, stable, and that stability is one of the really key elements in not only a sound economy but in a healthy politics because i mean if you think about it i mean u.s policy at least for the past couple of decades has really been characterized by this whipsaw right it depends on who you have in office you end up with these dramatic swings and changes in policy and i think jude would have attributed a lot of that political instability to economic instability and he yeah. would have seen that he would have seen the core problem there the fact that the, that the currency is not attached to, to anything stable not attached to anything real and so then you have the these concerns you mentioned inflation i remember when i was in high school in the united states a mortgage rates were 18 and 19% the idea was you poor young people you'll never again see the kind of low interest rates that us baby boomers had or whatever and now all of a sudden, you know, interest rates are like 2 and 3% here, you know, so it's, it's kind of shocking. When you look at a country and you say that in 20 years, interest rates could fluctuate from, from 18% to 2%, that's instability. And that's that's coming from the fact that the currency is not tied to anything real. And so it's purely the whims of whoever happens to be in control of the Federal Reserve or whoever happens to be in control of the government at the moment.
0: And do you see that as fundamentally undemocratic? Do you, I mean, do you think it's fair to say that the vast majority of the polis has no idea what's really driving their economic experience of life?
1: It certainly it certainly erodes liberty, and it certainly puts liberty in tension. You know, if you think about, like, the circular flow uh, of of money in an economy where you, you – uh, I mean, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with this or not, but you sort of picture in your mind an oval, right – And at one point in the Oval, businesses pay wages to households, and at another point in the Oval, households pay money to businesses to buy goods and services, right? And that's that's an extremely simplistic sort of picture of sort of how an economy works with that circular flow of money both businesses and households need stability and predictability in order to make decisions and so when you have dramatically fluctuating rates of growth when you have dramatically fluctuating interest rates and when you have huge changes in policy from one administration to another, it erodes stability, so it affects your decision-making, it affects your ability to do long-term planning, and all of those things, I think, create friction for economic liberty. In my organization, liberty is our keystone, both economic liberty and individual liberty, and we're concerned about anything that creates friction for liberty or that erodes liberty, and I think that a pendulum swing of economic policy from one extreme to the other certainly erodes economic liberty.
0: And how would you define liberty? What's what's your essential definition of liberty in the personal and economic sphere?
1: You know, there was this whole cabal of creative thinkers uh, in the '80s in the Reagan administration, and Jude was one of them. And there was another one. There was a there's a Treasury Department official named Norman Teare, and Norman Teare was a very, very influential thinker on tax policy. And one of Norman Teare's key principles for economics and tax policy was neutrality. Norman felt like government policy should be neutral. It shouldn't attempt to influence anyone's choices or decisions. So, for instance, tax policy should not attempt to influence people to buy a home or have children or go to college or not have children or not go to college. That tax policy should be neutral. It should be neutral with regard to spending and investment decisions businesses make. So if you're a printer, do you go out and, and buy the money to buy a printing press or do you lease the printing press? Do you buy your vehicles or do you lease them? Norman felt like those, the tax policy should not influence those decisions. Those ought to be made for purely business reasons and not tax reasons. Mm. And so to me, to me, that's the essential of economic liberty is that government policy does not try to nudge you in one direction or the other. So you make economic decisions for your family based purely on family considerations, not tax considerations. You make your decisions for your business purely on business decisions, business factors, not tax factors. And the sad thing is, is that's the opposite of what happens in real life, right? I mean, you know, if, if a if a business is trying to decide whether to make a purchase or investment, one of the first things they have to consider are the tax consequences, absolutely, right? Absolutely. And and so Norm's po- Norman Therese's point was that's wrong. The, the tax consequences should, should be inconsequential. And so that's why Norman would say, for instance, that there ought to be a principle that productive activity should be taxed once, but only once. Mm. All units of productive activity should be taxed once, but only once. And but what we tend to do is, you know, if you if you earn a buck as a worker, and then on your way home from work you go through the drive-through at the restaurant and you buy a burger, you pay sales taxes and then you're done, right? But if you were to take that buck and save it and invest it you actually enter into a whole new stream of new taxes, right? Mm-hmm. Capital gains taxes and dividend taxes and interest taxes. And then if you happen to die having accumulated any money, you've got to pay estate taxes and things like that. And to norm, that was a violation of economic liberty because the tax code was actually encouraging you to spend the money on the burger rather than save it and invest it, right? because you actually ended up paying more taxes if you did the you know if you did the right thing with the money rather than the wrong thing. So that's been a huge influence on my thinking and and it's a principle for evaluating any kind of government tax or economic policy is that it should be neutral. It shouldn't we have a we have a, we have a very influential thinker in this country named Cass Sunstein at the University of Chicago and he wrote a book a few years ago called Nudge. And the whole idea of the book is that we should use government policy to nudge people in the direction that we think they ought to be nudged. Mm. And this is diametrically opposed to the way Jude Wininski and Norm Turay would have looked at it. It's diametrically opposed to neoclassical economics. If you're free, you make decisions based on your own criteria, not criteria that is imposed on you by the government in the form of tax policy and taxes on investment and tax credits for having children or tax deductions for going to college and things like that.
0: So we're seeing, as you are in the United States, we're seeing a, a huge range of increasingly ideological tax manoeuvres and incentives from government. I mean, a classic one at the moment is around electric vehicles. like there's right. there's so much in our news here about you know tax incentives and all sorts of stuff so is that a case of what you're talking about of governments are, are choosing an outcome and then structuring tax policy to drive a particular ideological outcome
1: yes it it's a perfect example of that and you know not to become too eggheaded but on the other hand this is sort of an egghead uh, podcast right (laughs) and i should mention by the way just just backing up a little bit i'm a i'm a great admirer of this project that you have taken on i I think these topics are crucial i think these topics these are things i thought we learned in the 1980s and now we've sort of largely stepped away from them so so i'm an admirer of this project you have taken on to continue to talk about supply side economics and and to maybe Maybe a return to good thinking in those areas. So I think that's I think that's really important. But yes, your your example of like green subsidies and that kind of thing is a perfect example of this. So what you have is you have a government from the top down deciding, we think we know the direction that things should go, and so we're going to try to encourage that through tax policy, right? Now, the problem with that, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with with the economist uh, Friedrich Hayek, but of course you have Hayek's knowledge problem, right, which is, I think, one of the most important things people can understand in public policy. And the, the idea in the knowledge problem is that economies are not just ways of moving around pieces of paper. They're not just ways of moving money around. An economy is actually an incredibly complex data processing system, information processing, right? Right. And an economy is just mind-bogglingly complex. And the idea that any group of government bureaucrats sitting at the top of that, the idea that that they have enough access to information, the idea that their brains are big enough to sort of direct an economy from the top down is just ludicrous. It's just crazy. Mm. And I think we, we saw that, you know, with central planning in the Soviet Union and things like that, it just doesn't work, right? When I talk to US audiences, I say, "Where? how do you think you're going to get the best outcome from an economy? By the real-time decisions that are being made by 350 million people in the marketplace at any given time, or by, you know, by seven government-appointed bureaucrats sitting around an oak table, okay? I mean, really, where do you think you're going to get the, the, the best outcome? And to me, the answer is obvious. To me, the answer is you're going to get the best outcomes. You're going to get the answer to the question, how much should we pay for a price of strawberries? You're going to get the best answer from the computer of 350 million people making real decisions in the marketplace in real time rather than having some group of bureaucrats from the top down trying to decide what should be the price of the pint of strawberries right
0: as i listen to you i just thinking of uh, i can't remember where i, where I saw this but the, the the us fed has over 1500 phds on staff and as i'm listening to you i'm going they have more ph economics phds than anywhere in the world in, in one concentrated space yep. and yet us debt to gdp is running close to 130 uh, percent it's like as i listen to you i think that's a pretty compelling argument that if you you sell this idea that all the, the smartest people in the room are going to make the right choices on your behalf, we're not exactly seeing that borne out.
1: No, we're not. And, and we never have. I mean, if you go back in the U.S. all the way back to the progressive era and the attempts to deal, for instance, with the Great Depression, there's an author here in the U.S. named Amity Schlaes who's written a wonderful book going back and talking about the Great Depression and how, frankly, that sort of arrogant, technocratic, top-down approach to the Great Depression actually extended the damage of the Great Depression. It made it worse. It didn't solve it. Economies are just too complex. There's too much information going around for any group of bureaucrats to direct things from the top down. And so that's one of the problems with You know, if you go back to the, like, 1990s, for instance, Japan deciding that the the route to success for us is for us to become globally dominant in creating flat-screen TVs, you know, and see how that worked out for them. It didn't work out. Or in the U.S., you know, or in Australia deciding, you know what, we need to create tax incentives to force people to buy green vehicles or to convert to wind energy or whatever. Those are all examples, I think, of just stepping your foot squarely in Hayek's knowledge problem because your brain's not big enough and you don't have enough knowledge to to direct something as complex as an economy. We're far better off letting the economy be driven from the bottom up by, again, by the real-time decisions being made every hour by 350 million consumers making decisions in the marketplace. And one of the really humorous examples of this, of course, is at the same time, That the Obama administration in the U.S. was trying to kill the fossil fuel energy industry and was trying to direct, you know, convert to a green economy. At the very same time, you had the fracking revolution going on. And while the U.S. refused to join the Paris Climate Accords, we are the only major country that is actually meeting the CO2 standards of the Paris Climate Accords, even though we didn't join. But it's not through any effort of government. It's through the conversion from coal to natural gas that became possible because of fracking. So, you know, it's sort of like, you know, you and I are on a split screen right here as we're talking. It's almost like a split screen. On one side, you have the government trying to direct the economy in, in the green direction, and on the other side of the split screen, you have the private economy operating and which one was successful the private economy the the bottom-up approach actually resulted in lower co2 emissions in the u.s mm-hmm. whereas if you look at countries where they've taken this top-down approach where they've had all sorts of green energy mandates and carbon taxes and things like that they're not meeting their <laughs> they're not meeting their paris you know commitments in the u.s is so i just think over and over and over again we see the demonstration of the superiority of economic liberty and a bottom-up approach to the economy, as a, as opposed to a top-down approach.
0: So, are we back to like Adam Smith's invisible hand? I, and I say that because listening to you, I took my family to Manhattan last year, eighteen months ago, and we're on the Upper East Side. And we went into this uh, what we would supermarket. I remember walking in there, and we have everything here in Australia. We're very well provisioned, but I was like oh my lord, this was like phenomenal, you know, like, and then another Whole Foods market is like the sheer range of available stuff. And then the logistics and the the complexity of how each individual thing was created and perceived as a marketable commodity, and it made its way via transport. It's quite extraordinary when you step back and look at it, right?
1: It's brilliant. It's really it's almost a miracle. This reminds me of the famous Leonard Reed essay I pencil where he says, you know, nobody knows no, nobody knows how to make a pencil, right? And of course his, his the point of the illustration is that even for something as simple as a pencil, there's an incredible complex chain of events that has to take place for that pencil to ever be produced, whether it's the graphite or the wood or the metal or the rubber. And it's a beautiful example of sort of the symphony of voluntary association and people working. No one compels anyone to do any of those things, right? Everyone's just working voluntarily to produce that. And then you look at I mean, I'm old enough to remember the pictures of, you know, housewives standing in line in the Soviet Union, hoping they could get a loaf of bread that day. So, I mean, the, the contrast could not be more powerful between the government, you know, on the one hand, look, have, have property rights, have a rule of law regime, try to have as level of playing field as possible, and then get out of the way and let intelligent hard-working people create for themselves the difference between that approach and the sort of top-down we're going to trust the genius bureaucrats to tell us what to do and to direct the economy to me the contrast could not be more clear and i certainly think adam smith was correct about that and you know the most influential economist probably in history earlier today i was actually wearing an adam smith tie at an event so i'm i'm very much an acolyte of adam smith
0: well, i wanted to ask you i i read this quote recently in rothbard's book uh, the case against the fed and i'm going to have to dig out who he was quoting because it really stayed with me and he argued that there's only three things government should do and only three so i'd, I'd love your thoughts on this and they were enforce contracts national defense, and the protection of persons and property.
1: And that's a a really clear statement of essentially libertarian philosophy. You know, in principle, of course, I would agree with all of that. On the other hand, I live in a real world, and and I don't think in a real world anything approaching sort of a perfect libertarian situation is possible. I mean, I think we're stuck with the welfare state. I think we are stuck with what we in the U.S. call the social security system or, you know, various sorts of retirement security systems. I think we're stuck with those things. And I don't lose sleep at night because of that. But again, this takes us back to Jude Wininsky, right? Jude would say, okay, fine. Those are political decisions. I mean, if a state wants to have a welfare state, if it wants to have some sort of retirement security program, disability program, ex- essentially, those are those are not economic decisions. Those are political decisions. But let's run them in a way that makes economic sense and the problem is too often governments don't run their welfare states in ways that make sense and they don't run their retirement systems in ways that make sense and in fact here in the u.s the two greatest threats to our future economic health are in fact the welfare state and and the retirement system both of which are running deficits and are going broke And which really seriously imperil the economic future of generations. Well I
0: was reading your piece in The Spectator this morning and you quoted unfunded future social security obligations of thirteen point two trillion and student debt I think is running at about one point five. So I wanted to ask you about that. When does the music stop? At what point does the government finally say we are not going to fund these obligations?
1: You know, we have a we all have a natural sense that the idea of being like deeply in over your head in debt can't end well (laughs) you you know not complex no it's not complex the trick is though that human beings have a limited lifespan right i have a certain amount of time in which i have to get my finances in order or else i leave terrible problems to my heirs and the thing is nations don't die nations don't have a lifespan and so it's not fair i think to compare government debt to household debt for that reason because in theory governments can roll their debt over forever but what does matter is that it has to be serviceable
0: hmm.
1: it's got to be serviceable so i have and, and most most supply-siders both you know in in jude's day and also today most supply-siders don't have a whole lot of problem With national debt we see debt as a tool not as a curse the debt you use to to get to gain additional education the debt you use to gain a to buy a house to buy a car that's not bad debt that's good debt it's a tool but it's got to be serviceable you got to be able to service it right at some point it's too much and so the real question the answer to your question of when i think i think the exact same question is how much debt can a government service and we don't know the answer to that but we do know that it's tied to economic growth we do know that if if an economy is growing if an economy is innovating then it is actually it is increasing the degree to which it can service debt right and so that's why for supply siders supply siders tend to not be debt and deficit hawks. What we tend to be is enthusiastic proponents of economic growth because you really can grow your way out of a lot of problems. If the debt is growing at 2% a year, but your, econ- your GDP is growing at 4% a year, you're great. You can grow your way out of that. The problem is that that's not what's been happening lately in most of the developed nations. And yeah. most of the developed nations, their economies have been growing slower than their debt has been growing. There's almost been an inverse relationship. And what's scary is, you know, you you look at low interest rates and you say, you know, I mean, what are interest rates? Interest rates are essentially an informed bet on the future. So if interest rates are low, informed people are expressing confidence in the future
0: Mm.
1: of that country. So that's a good thing, right? So if we have really low interest rates in the U.S., what that says is that, Informed investors are optimistic about the long-term economic future of the country. That's good news. Here's the problem. The problem is we know from things like the financial crisis in 2008 that things can change fast. They can change really fast. Mm -hmm. And so if something happened to erode confidence in the U.S. economy, all of a sudden, I mean, if you game this out, what would happen? Well, people would suddenly stop buying U.S. debt. They would stop buying treasury debt. Well, Treasury needs people to buy that debt. And so what would it do? Well, it would have to offer higher interest rates in order to get people to buy that debt. You'd have to put more of a premium on it. And so you have this sense that things can seem to be good for a very long time, for decades and decades, but that it can turn really, really fast. And so for those of us who are supply-siders. We're not deficit hawks, and we don't lose sleep at night over the national debt. You got to keep it under control. Economic growth is not a license for government to just spend recklessly. And that's one of my great concerns. You know, in the U.S., when President Trump came into office, part of his political calculation was to promise people, you know, we're not going to change Social Security, we're not going to change welfare, anything like that. And so ironically President Trump has at, has ended up adding more to the debt even than President Obama did which is scary.
0: I wanted to ask you something I asked Nathan Lewis. We've got a is there a truly structural problem in the nature of our democracies in that at best political leaders are getting one term to two terms so depending on the country you know somewhere between 6 to 8 years. Peter Schiff makes the point that People don't go into politics to make money. They go into politics to make money after politics, by which, you know, this idea that our political leaders are able to kick the can down the road indefinitely as long as it doesn't blow up on their watch. That strikes me as a major structural problem in where we've reached in the sort of the whole democratic project, doesn't it? In the, in the sense that there's no imperative, true imperative for a political leader to deal with real austerity questions or really change things on a on a truly seismic level.
1: I think that's true. And unfortunately this could be an entire podcast in itself. <laughs> in, yeah. in and of itself. Like where has democracy gone wrong? And I can't speak authoritatively about your country or any other country, but in the US, clearly one of the problems that has happened is that we have a system in the U.S. of divided branches of government. You have the legislative branch, you have the judicial branch, and you have the executive branch. And what has happened over time is the executive branch and the judicial branch have accrued some of the power of the legislature. Mm-hmm. And this was not the founder's design, it's not our constitutional design. And so what has ended up happening, you have like the judicial branch, which is unaccountable to the voters. At some point, it dawned on Congress, the legislative branch, that they could defer to the other two branches. They could avoid all the really tough political issues. They could avoid dealing with them. They could leave them to the executive branch and the judicial branch, and they could just keep getting elected. And so we have a crisis, a crisis of civics in the U.S., I think, that has contributed to this, which is that the very branch of government that is designed to be most accountable to the people has figured out that it can essentially defer its duties to the other branches of government. And that, I think, is one of the real central problems that we have in government right now, is that the voters don't hold the legislators they don't hold the elected officials accountable for the results, which is a very, very peculiar thing that has happened. Is
0: that because the elected officials can just put throw their hands in the air and say, hey, we tried, but?
1: Yes. And, and of course, it happened over time. It happened over time in the U.S. But I mean, essentially what happened is Congress at some point in a very gradual evolutionary way figured out that when they make law, they can do it in a very generic way and they can leave the implementation of it to the regulatory branch and they can leave the interpretation and enforcement of it to the judicial branch. And both both of those functions are un, unaccountable to the voters. And so both of those functions were more than happy to take the additional power. The regulators were more than happy to take on additional power. And the judicial branch was more than happy to take on additional power. And so you, you ended up with this really sort of corrupt almost incestuous bargain where Congress said, yeah, we, we will we'll continue to get elected. Then when we're no longer, in, as you said, when we're no longer in power, we'll go out and become lobbyists and become board members of various corporations and we'll make our money. But we'll actually leave all the hard stuff to the other two branches of government. I don't think American the American system is functioning today as it, as it was designed to function. And the the problem is is that you you know there will be a series of crises that happen as a result of this. I think the 2008 financial meltdown was an example of that. And remember uh, Dick Cheney in the U.S. used to say there are unknown unknowns. And so I think we have a number of unknown unknowns ahead of us. We don't know what's going to happen, but, but you know something's going to happen. You know there are going to be crises because... No one is really accepting responsibility to deal with these issues.
0: Well, what's that going to look like? I was listening to Jim Rogers yesterday talking and he was on Kidco News and they were asking him the next crisis, what are his thoughts on it? he said, look, and he must be in his late 70s, maybe early 80s now. And his point was, he says, this will be the worst in his lifetime. Now, he's a pretty sober kind of guy. And They asked him why and he said well simply because the debt levels are so much higher without you know getting into doomsday scenarios With debt to GDP the way it is and I know you've made some great points about you know the the debt not being the preeminent thing per se, but What do you see coming down the line when you look at? the level of currency creation the level of debt the unfunded forward obligations would you agree with the Jim Rogers? Would you think it's going to be the worst we've seen?
1: Jim's brilliant. Uh, Did you ever read his book Investment Biker?
0: Not yet. It's on the list.
1: Oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a fabulous. It's a fabulous book. He's really he's brilliant. You know, Jim essentially relocated to Singapore. Yeah, because as an expression of his sort of lack of confidence in the in in the U.S. economy and in the U.S. system, the the problem in the U.S. is that despite what most people think, the Federal Reserve does not actually control interest rates. interest rates are still determined in the marketplace by willing buyers and willing sellers. One of the problems with departing from the gold standard or departing from any standard whatsoever is that absent a standard, governments have an incentive to inflate the currency Mm -hmm. and governments have an incentive to try to have low interest rates because it makes their own debt easier to service, right? And it doesn't matter that that that's a brutal on retirees on fixed incomes and things like that it doesn't matter that it hurts them because it helps solve the government's problem but the problem that we have when you have these high levels of debt is it doesn't take much of an in- of an increase in interest rates to actually bring the whole house of cards down yeah. even as high as the debt is right now i think you would have to say that this is still a serviceable amount of debt as long as as long as the treasury department has no problem selling treasuries if i were going to bet 5 bucks on what the next big crisis is, I would bet that it is an escalation of conflict with China, because all it would take is China saying, you know what? We're not interested in buying US debt anymore. That's all it would take. And interest rates on US debt, the Treasury Department would have to immediately raise interest rates on their offerings in order to get people to buy the debt. And I think that's the sort of thing that could create a cascade of economic problems. And again, this is one of the reasons why supply siders tend to be advocate proponents of free trade. Because we really do believe that people who profit from each other and trade with each other tend to not get into shooting wars with each other. And China's a bad actor. And we know that China's a bad actor. And there's steps we need to take from a cybersecurity and national security standpoint. In order to frustrate China's attempts to be a bad actor, but on the other hand, I'm one of those rare few who still believe that engagement is better than disengagement, and I think it's it's in the U.S.'s interest to try to remain a constructive, engaged partner with China for the very if for no other reason. But the fact that we need them to continue to buy our debt. We need them to continue to be a constructive player in the global economy. Why make unnecessary enemies?
0: We've got a huge amount of stuff happening here in Australia at the moment. Even in the last 48 hours, uh, China's just put an 80% tariff on Australian coal. So, you know, we are... Huge net exporters to China across a whole range of things. So we are in literally in Australia this week, in the absolute thick of some really complex decisions with uh, with what exactly what you're talking about.
1: Well, you know, my friend, my friend Tim Wilson, who's a member of your Parliament, posted a, an interesting thing the other day on social media. It was like a post, a poster, and it said like, "Fight communism buy Australian wine," <laughs> right? <laughs> <That is laughs> which, which I which I think is all sort of part of and tied up in this scenario that you're describing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, also China obviously has some big designs on Taiwan as well, right?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, foreign policy is not my thing. I just have to acknowledge that up front. It's hard for me to see what the alternative is to spheres of influence. It's really hard for me to understand that. And if you go back in U.S. history, look at things like the Monroe Doctrine, where essentially the U.S. essentially declared that Central America and South America were within the U.S. sphere of influence, So that may have been an overly ambitious thing to do. I don't know how you get around the idea of spheres of influence, especially when it comes to Taiwan. I'm a tremendous, I have tremendous respect for Taiwan and for what they contribute and for their independence. I think that's really important. I think the U.S. should be an ally of Taiwan. I think all, all people who respect Freedom and liberty should be allies of Taiwan. But will the major powers really get into a shooting war with China over Taiwan? Will they really be able to sell that to their people? I, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how you sell that. I don't know how you sell that to your citizens.
0: Yeah, I mean, China's got also enormous internal problems. You know, demographically. I mean, my understanding is that there's enormous dislocation internally. The Chinese miracle in terms of the the huge growth and output along the coastal fringe sucked in vast numbers of I guess what you would have called peasant labor in the past and. You know, there's, there's huge internal cohesion problems in China itself. And so one simple thesis is that the Chinese need to distract from internal problems by looking for increasing you know, challenges overseas.
1: It's very popular in the U.S. right now to say, boy, wasn't that stupid to think somehow that economic liberty is associated with political liberty? boy, weren't we stupid to think that. I still believe that there's a relationship between economic liberty and political liberty. I still think that Deng Xiaoping's decision to open the economy and to allow for private property and to allow for elements of capitalism, I still think it, it, it is a logical possibility that that will still be the thing that ends up bringing down Chinese communism. I have not yet disposed myself of that idea. It's very popular right now to see that as a ridiculous, naive, romantic notion in the US. But you you see right now, you see in, in China, you see Xi cutting back on economic liberty and things like that, because I think he correctly sees it as a threat to the party, yeah, to to all of that. Well, I was talking to
0: Mike Kendall about this last week where we discussed the Chinese social credit system and also the potential issuing of central bank digital currencies around the world, that every digital dollar is programmable, right, in the sense that uh, it's possible for once we get rid of cash, I mean, really starting people are starting to have those conversations, that your access to funds can be literally controlled by central banks now i thing i wanted to ask you to pivot a little bit was i've just finished reading ross douthat's book the decadent society which i found really really interesting he makes some really important points about demography about declining birth rates and also his take on technology is really interesting he would say that we have not been growing massively in terms of technological improvement over the last 30, 40, 50 years. What I wanted to ask you about was, you said earlier that the debt's not unserviceable necessarily and supply-siders aren't necessarily worried about debt. The concept of a growing economy, I want to talk about the interplay between a declining birth rate and technology. Do you think the US can get itself out of this problem, by leveraging technology while its birth rate is starting to decline. Do you understand what I'm getting at?
1: No, yeah, no, absolutely. We already know that that's happening, right? I mean, that's essentially what you just described is increasing productivity. That that's what increasing productivity is. A greater amount of economic output without a corresponding increase in the labor supply, yeah. right? So there's no question that that is what innovation does. But, you know, for those of us, I mean, if, if you really want to sum up the supply side approach to economics, it's what? Supply creates its own demand, right? We, we, we believe that you want an abundant supply of all of the factors. Well, labor is one of those things. You want an abundant supply of labor. And if the supply of labor is restricted, that will restrict economic growth, just like if capital is restricted. Labor's the same way. And so that's why for any country that wants its economy to continue to grow, if the birth rate is going down, you can really only compensate for that in two ways. One is with increased productivity, and the other is with immigration. Those are really the only two ways you can deal with a constrained labor supply. In the U.S., we're really, really good at the innovation part, and we have historically been really good at the immigration part. One of the things that has concerned those of us who are supply-siders during the the four years of President Trump has been this reversion to sort of an anti-immigration attitude. It's astonishing how many of the Fortune 400 companies today were either started by or are currently helmed by immigrants to the United States. Uh, Earlier today, I did a Zoom policy briefing with the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai, His parents were immigrants from India. Wow. And in one generation, he went from being the child of poor immigrants to being the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. Mm. That kind of immigration is a net plus and a blessing to a country. And so you've got to have both. You've got to have, I mean, an advanced economy has to have both. A third world economy or, or an LDC can get by simply on abundant supply of labor. But an advanced advanced economy has to have both. It has to have an abundant supply of labor, and it has to have innovation. And so one of my great concerns about the U.S. economy going forward is not a lack of innovation, but a lack of labor supply because of this sort of turn, this pivot that's going on right now against immigration. Now, I do think that I'm not so libertarian as to believe that anybody who wants to come to the U.S. should be allowed to come to the U.S. and no government should stand in their way. Some libertarians believe that. I I actually think borders matter. But we should certainly be encouraging skilled immigration in the U.S. We should certainly be encouraging people with degrees, people with technical expertise, we should be almost bribing them and luring them to come to the U.S. You know, we want the rest of the world's brain drain. Uh, the U.S. has always been blessed by the curse of a lot of countries is brain drain, right? Is their best and their brightest leaving and coming to the U.S. Well, we've always been blessed by that. You don't want to see that change. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we need the increased productivity that comes from innovation, but we also still need a constant inflow of skilled new labor that's coming into the country. The fact of the matter is, is that the hardest working people in the US economy are immigrants and the children of immigrants because they have a greater appreciation and less of a sense of entitlement than most native-born Americans have. And so there's a constant rejuvenation of the American experiment that happens as a result of immigration. And we don't want to see that come to an end. This is one of the real problems of Trumpism in the U.S. actually, is that in a period of four years, the Republican Party at least has pivoted from being generally pro-immigration to being generally negative on immigration. And there's all sorts of ridiculous things that happen as a result. To use sort of a silly example, I mean, groups of students used to come from other countries, from Brazil to the U.S. to like go to Disney World, you know, and things like that. It used to be easy for them to do that. They don't come anymore because we've made it too onerous to bring like groups to the U.S. So the tourism industry is harmed. The theme park industry is harmed. We have a university here in Dallas with me, the University of Texas at Dallas. They were known for the number of international students that study computer science and things like that at UTD. Last year, for the first time in the University of Texas at Dallas's history, their enrollment was down and it was due to foreign students not coming into the U.S., Mm -hmm. either because the U.S. has made it harder or because of everything they, they see and hear in the media about, you know, the U.S. becoming hostile to immigration. So there are some real long-term problems if we have a cultural shift in the U.S. against immigration. Mm. Now, I'm a big proponent in doing everything we can do to stop illegal immigration. I think you want people to play by the rules. In a sense, our immigration system in the U.S. has been so broken that I almost can't blame people for sneaking across the mm. border because it's it's been so hard to come in legally. So what we really, what we really need in the U.S. is a system where it's easy to get a work permit to come into the US and work as an immigrant and the shorthand for that in the US is legal status. We don't need to make them citizens, but we need to make it really easy for them to have legal status to come into the US and to work and to pay taxes and if they want to send their net receipts back home to Mexico or wherever for the family, that's great, but we ought to make it easy for people to come into the country and work on a legal status because, again. Supply-siders believe you wanted an abundant supply of everything. We need an abundant supply of labor. There was a very, very important economic work that was done years ago by two economists, Lowell Galloway and Richard Vetter. And they did a study of what happened after World War II. The U.S. had hundreds of thousands of young men who had been fighting in World War II. They were young, they were trained to be violent, and they were all going to come home at one time. And there was incredible consternation in the U.S. What are we going to do with all of these young men who have been trained to be violent? There's just no chance that that they will all be able to find employment. And so you had things like the GI Bill and things like that that were created to try to address this. Well, a remarkable thing happened. They all did find employment. (laughs) They did. And all of the societal problems that people were forecasting, none of them happened. And it was a really interesting demonstration of supply side economics that supply creates its own demand you had this very unusual situation where you had a sudden increase in the supply of labor and what happened the economy absorbed it and grew mm. it absorbed it and grew so it really is true says law really is true that supply creates its own demand if if you create an abundant supply of capital If you create an abundant supply of raw materials, if you create an abundant supply of intellectual capital, if you create an abundant supply of labor, a free economy absorbs it, finds creative things to do with it, and grows, and that's one of the most powerful demonstrations. So this idea somehow that every net immigrant to the US is like a lost job for a, you know, native born American that's just nuts. It's not what happens. The pie grows. It's not a zero sum world. The economy is open, it's not closed. So
0: let me ask you as coming back to this question of technology. So there was definitely a time going back into the 70s and 80s where manufacturing was still relatively strong. Uh, No doubt, obviously, in places in the US like Detroit, but here in Australia, we had, you know, really strong steel industry in towns like Newcastle, which is just north of Sydney. So with technology changing so much, that great manufacturing base, can you talk about that? Like if those jobs are disappearing, I guess what I'm alluding to is things like universal basic income, because there's this terrible idea that we should be paying people not to work Now I think that has my backgrounds in philosophical anthropology there's something about humans where I think we need to work ontologically we need to actually work is in itself an inherently edifying noble thing and so I guess my question is with the disappearance of manufacturing the impact of technology and AI Are we, how is this gonna happen? How are we going to find work? Are we just coming back to what you've just said, which is supply will create new types of demand. We'll figure it out. Could, can you talk a little bit about the whole paying people not to work, technology, disappearing manufacturing, any thoughts on that stuff?
1: So many thoughts on that stuff. (laughs) It's really really an interesting and fascinating area. and, And I have a lot of thoughts on that this fear somehow that technology and innovation is going to result in huge swaths of people being unemployable. This is not a new thing. I mean, this if you watch episodes of the old black and white TV show, The Twilight Zone, this is, this is a common theme, right? That robots were going to take over and humans weren't going to have anything to do yeah. and all that kind of thing. This is sort of what drove the whole sort of Luddite thing in England where they were smashing textile looms and things like that. I mean, our, our human experience is that those fears have never actually come true. Mm. And this is another testament to supply-side economics which is that there seems to be an unlimited potential of free economies to absorb new influxes of whatever whatever information talent labor capital technology and to find creative things to do with it so i am not among those who think somehow this time it's different you know, AI is going to put everybody out of work and we're going to have to have a universal basic income and, you know, pretty, we're, we're right on the cusp of things looking like the Star Trek universe, you know, where there's unlimited power. So if I'm not one of those people, I don't believe it. I don't believe, I don't believe this time it's different. And there's a couple other directions to go with this. On this idea of the declining and lost manufacturing base, some of that, again, because the economy is open and because capital can move around the globe like Quicksilver. Some of that is just the natural result of other economies growing and developing, right? I grew up in the state of South Carolina in the United States. The dominant industry in South Carolina was textile manufacturing. And in about a 12-year period of time, that all went away. That entire industry went to Southeast Asia, went to Vietnam, and went to Cambodia, and went to Indonesia. The entire industry went away in a little over a decade. The South Carolina politicians thought the only solution was protectionism, right? I mean, tariffs and protectionism, that's the only thing we can do or we'll be devastated. Well, they didn't get their tariffs, they didn't get their protectionism. And in fact, today, the state of South Carolina is the home of advanced manufacturing. Boeing, the aircraft Hmm. company, has a facility there. BMW has a car manufacturing facility there. The French tire company, Michelin, has a manufacturing facility there. In, In the course of 12 years, the economy of South Carolina flipped over from an economy that was dependent on low-skilled textile manufacturing to high-skilled, high-value-added manufacturing. So, again, there seems to be this unlimited capacity of a free economy that no government's trying to direct from the top down. You just let people be creative with their investments and with their decisions. There seems to be an unlimited capacity to deal with change, and to deal with new influxes of things. But we should not look past the ability of government to screw things up. In the U.S., at least, part of the story of the loss of manufacturing, there's more to it than just other comp- other countries developing. There's also our shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, we have something in the U.S. that we call the Rust Belt, mm-hmm. and it's the sort of northern central U.S., which was the home of, of heavy manufacturing mm-hmm. in the steel industry and and uh, smelters and things like that. We killed our own rust belt with tax policy, with ridiculous depreciation schedules to where manufacturers were having heavy manufacturers. If they would invest in new plant or new equipment, they couldn't deduct the investment in the year it was made. They had to depreciate it out over 35 and 40 years with high capital gains taxes, with union and labor policies that resulted in manufacturing workers making two and three times the wages that would have been determined in a free market. So there's a very real sense in which, at least in the US, we killed our own heavy manufacturing industry through government policy. And that's a factor that you you don't want to overlook. That's one of the reasons why one of the most exciting things in the US that has happened in the last four years has been the the 2017 tax cuts. Mm -hmm where we dramatically slashed taxes on corporations and got us corporate tax policy in line with the rest of the advanced world. We changed our depreciation rules to where most businesses now can deduct the cost of an investment in the year in which it's made rather than having to depreciate it out over 30 or 35 years and things like that. So to some degree, you, you can end up with changes in the industrial mix because of factors that are outside your control. But we should never gloss over the fact that there are factors that are within our control, too, that government can very often screw up and and cause harm to. So I'm not a, I'm not a believer in the universal basic income. I, there are some libertarians who are, and they make some interesting arguments. I'm not a believer because I don't believe this time it's different. Because I, I do believe, again, to sort of beat a dead horse, that there's an almost – Economic history suggests there's an almost unlimited capacity of a free economy to make something of, of any resource, be it abundant labor, be it abundant capital, between it be new knowledge and new innovation, be it labor. I think we're on the cusp of a biological revolution in the biological sciences. I think the speed at which we were able to design not one but multiple vaccine candidates for COVID-19. Vaccine development used to take three to five years. One of the vaccines that was developed was essentially developed in a computer in two days, and the rest of the time was all devoted to trial and testing. I think that we will see a revolution now in the development of vaccines for things, and in vaccines used as a treatment for other diseases like cancers and things like that. All of those things are going to create jobs, they're going to create economic growth, And you might lose your job working in the steel mill, but your child and your grandchild may end up working using, you know, gene splicing to develop genetic treatments to cure muscular dystrophy and things like that. And you've got to take that sort of generational view and, and never just look at the economy at one given slice in time, and make judgments about. So,
0: Tom, let me, ask you, because I'm I'm relatively new to this whole space. The, the critique of supply side is, it's Reaganomics, it's trickle down, it's rich are going to get richer, and there'll be some scraps maybe for the poor. Can you critique that for me? Can you help me understand how that argument, how you would respond to it, that argument?
1: The rhetoric that you use, that you that you uh, accurately quoted others as criticizing with supply side economics and that is the rhetoric that they use but there is a sense in which while trickle down economics is a is a slur of supply side economics i firmly believe that that happens i firmly believe that that's true absolutely true one of the distinctions of supply side e- economics is the idea that human beings largely make rational intelligent decisions given the rules of whatever game they're playing. If government says, okay, we're going to raise the capital gains tax, human beings, they'll go out and they'll sell a bunch of their long-term investments, right, to get in under the wire before the capital gains tax goes up. If a country says, you know, if you make over a million dollars, we're going to tax every additional dollar at 90%, like the UK did back in the 70s, people are going to make rational decisions. And that's why the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all those musicians fled the UK because of those high taxes. As long as there's freedom of movement of people and as long as there's freedom of movement of capital, people are going to make rational decisions based on the rules of the game. And so that is a key thing to understand, in supply-side economics that people respond to incentives they change their behavior based on incentives and a great example of this is in the early 1990s during the bill clinton administration when, when Bill Clinton first came into office, I don't remember the year, but it was one of the first two years of the Clinton administration. Democratic rhetoric insists that, you know, we have to stick it to the rich and we have to tax the rich and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. The Democratic Party controlled Congress and the White House. And so they implemented what they called a luxury tax. And the luxury tax was an additional sales tax on goods that the wealthy supposedly bought, right? So it was an additional tax on jewelry, boats, yachts, fur coats and things like that luxury Mm. goods right and so what's the idea here is let's stick it to the rich let's let let's let the rich pay their fair share in an astonishingly short amount of time it became very clear that that wasn't working what in fact was happening is that the rich were going and buying those same things other places they were buying them in europe they were buying them in switzerland they were buying them in germany but what was happening is The poor working stiffs, the poor blue collar working stiffs in the US who who made boats and who sold jewelry and who worked as sales clerks selling fur coats, they're the ones who lost their jobs. Mm. And it became very clear that the luxury tax completely backfired and that it was working people that it was harming, not the wealthy. Mm. And so within about 18 months, Congress, you know, retracted the luxury tax. They undid it because it was very clear that the results of bad economic policies did indeed trickle down to the working class. And what supply side economics says is everything trickles down to the working class, both the good and the bad. So if a wealthy person is able to keep more of their money through lower taxes, they are more inclined to spend that money on more consumption, more saving and investment. You know, maybe you're an upper middle class person and your taxes get cut. And you know what? For the first time in my life, I can afford to pay somebody to come mow my lawn. Mm. I can afford to pay somebody to come out and clean my pool and test for chlorine or whatever. For the first time in my life, I can afford to pay someone to come in twice a month and, you know, help me clean the house and things like that. That's what happens. So when you cut taxes on upper income people, you absolutely do create increased economic opportunity for people that are lower on the income schedule, on the income ladder. It is absolutely a fact. And we know that this happens. So it is actually true. Trickle down is true. Both good and bad trickles down. You know, when the left says, for instance, uh, let's mandate a $15 an hour minimum wage, that's going to benefit the most desirable employees in a company. But the marginal employees, the ones that are not worth $15 an hour, what's going to happen to them? They're going to lose their opportunity. They're going to lose that first or second rung on the ladder. And even though I would today be classified as an upper income earner, there was a time when I worked for minimum wage, when I was in high school, When I was working my way through college, I worked for minimum wage. Again, you don't want to look at just one slice in time. You have to think about the impact of policies over a lifetime or over multiple lifetimes. There's nothing wrong with earning a minimum wage at the time in your life, when it's appropriate for you to be earning a minimum wage, it gives you an opportunity to get a leg up. So trickle down is true. It's demonstrably true. And both the good and the bad trickles down. So I don't have a problem embracing the idea that supply-side economics is a form of the benefits trickling down. I think it absolutely happens. And and the the data suggests, especially, you know, during the Reagan years, during the 80s and the ta- Reagan tax cuts, that a rising tide lifts all boats. It really is true. You know, there's a very important book that was written by Robert Bartley. Robert Bartley was the the head of the Wall Street Journal editorial page for decades. And he was a supply sider. He's a guy who hired Jude Wininsky. And Robert Bartley wrote a book called The Seven Fat Years and it ought to be required reading for people. And he goes through not only the the history of this time period, but he also marshals all of the arguments that were used. And Bartley does a terrific job in that book of dealing with exactly this topic about how low income people were actually the biggest beneficiaries in relative terms from the Reagan tax cuts. Now, did the wealthy do well? Yes, they did. But in relative terms, low-income people actually did the best. And the same thing happened as a result of the 2017 Trump tax cuts in the US. I mean, before the COVID pandemic hit, you had the lowest rates of Black unemployment on record. You had the lowest rates of Hispanic unemployment on record. The Trump tax cuts in the Trump economy disproportionately benefited lower income demographics. There's just no doubt about it cutting literally cutting the corporate tax rate benefited workers. Now did it benefit the corporations? Yes. But corporations and wealthy people, they don't bury their money in a hole in the backyard. Hmm. They don't stuff it in the mattress, they put it to work. And when they when they put their money to work, that creates economic opportunity for the rest of us. So I want to live in a country where it's easy to become rich, not simply because I would like to have some hope of becoming rich someday, but because I know that in a country where it's easy to become rich, just that function in and of itself creates all kind of economic opportunity for everyone else.
0: So help me understand the one big question I keep asking myself is, when I read Nathan Lewis's work, it, it just struck me as so much common sense and his research and his data. And I listened to you, how is it, that within very short spaces of historical time governments forget these basic principles how, how do you account for that if we know that low taxes and stable money works and you've just articulated some of the benefits of of those tax cuts why do we seem to forget it so frequently
1: well i i think you know ironically we're talking about incentives, which is, again, as as supply-siders, right, we believe in incentives. I think government has different incentives than the private sector has. One of my personal sort of political philosophical distinctions is this idea that, and this comes from public choice theory, that government is its own interest group. Government has its own interests that are independent from the interests of the people in the country. There's too much of a tendency of people to see government as a proxy for the country in my view the government is not the country a country has a government but the government is not the country and i think that's important because we can see empirically that government has its own agenda it has its own interests And those interests may or may not be aligned with the interests of the people. And so in a a democracy, we rely on representative democracy to try to keep the government's interest at least somewhat in line with the people's because if it's not, we can vote them out. But the more entrenched the parts of government that are not responsible to the people become, the regulators, the judicial branch, things like that, the more entrenched that becomes the public sector as a whole, the less responsive it becomes to the people and the more it tends to develop its own interests. It's more of interest to the government to play off of the negative elements of human nature than it is to play off of the positive elements of human nature. Mm. Because the positive elements of human nature are individual responsibility, self-sufficiency, responsibility, productivity, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. And you don't need government for any of that stuff. It's the negative elements of human nature, dependency, weakness, irresponsibility. Those are the things you need government for. And so I think it is in the interest of government, again, as its own special interest, as its own constituency, it's in the interest of government to play to the negative elements in human nature rather than to the positive elements in human nature. And so I don't think it's cynical to say that government has an interest In the people being dependent on government, feeling like they need government, feeling like they can't survive without government. And this is one of the reasons why when we have those rare occasional government shutdowns in the U.S. because of some dispute over the budget or something, I cross my fingers and pray that they will last for an extended amount of time. (laughs) Because I think the American people need a lesson in the fact that, you know what, hey, the federal government's been shut down for three weeks, but when I get up in the morning and turn on the shower, water still comes out. You know, the lights still come on when I flip on the light switch. I'm still going to work. I'm still able to put gas in my car. I'm still getting a paycheck. Maybe I don't need government as much as I thought I did. Instead, you get this idea somehow that if the government, you know, goes 36 hours without the ability to cut checks to people that somehow the entire country is going to collapse. So I do think that the government has a cynical self-interest in playing to the worst elements in human nature. And so it falls to those of us who are proponents of freedom and individual liberty and economic liberty. It falls to us to continue to beat the drum and to make the arguments of the superiority of capitalism, free enterprise, individual liberty, independence from government, limited government, all of those things. If we, if we don't proactively make those arguments, we will be swamped. By government.
0: And do you see the developed world essentially on a trajectory in the opposite direction to what you're saying? I mean, is it fair to say that the developed world at this moment is on a trajectory of increasing levels of government intervention and involvement in people's lives?
1: I I think that's absolutely the case.
0: How do you account for that? What do you what, what do you think is the is the fundamental reason for that?
1: There's a lot of consternation about things like voter turnout. There's an assumption, for instance, that high voter turnout is a good thing and low voter turnout is a bad thing. And I've always felt exactly the opposite. I've always thought that high voter turnout is actually an indication that the people are unhappy or having anxiety about something. And I've always seen low voter turnout actually as a healthy sign of stability and content, you know, with the way things are going. And we see trends in all the developed countries of increased voter turnout once again everybody talks like that like that's a good thing i don't think it's a good thing i think that wealthy nations the curse of wealth is this idea somehow that by paying high taxes to government government can solve all problems and i think this is why hayek's knowledge problem is such a revolutionary idea. We were joking internally among our staff about this the other day. There's this dirty little secret. The first time you get a first job in government, or the first time you get a, a job with a, like a corporation or something like that, it's a bit of a shocking revelation when you find out that like nobody actually knows what they're doing. <laughs> you know, they're 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 not smarter than you are. You know, everybody's just kind of winging it. <laughs> and the reason that that's a shock is that we grow up with this idea somehow that it is the brilliant among us who are all running things wisely. And the truth is that's that's not true at all. The, the people who are running things are the people who manage to weasel their way into positions of running things. It doesn't mean they're smarter or better or brighter or anything. That we're, all, we're all just winging it. Again, it's this sort of funny revelation when you look around the, the conference room table and realize nobody at that table is any smarter than you are. But I think it's human nature and it, it goes back to tribalism i think to think somehow that our tribal leaders are wise and intelligent that they speak directly to the gods or whatever and that it is our job to somehow trust them and have confidence in them and to do what they tell us to do i just think it's human nature and i think that that the enlightenment was a shot across the bow of that sort of tribalism in human nature. I think you're always fighting a rearguard action when you're sort of fighting against tribalism and, and that kind of human nature. So I think it's human nature to believe that our betters are our betters, that they know better than we do, we can trust them, we can believe what they say, and that if they say that all our problems will be solved by raising taxes and by spending more money on education, well, that must be the case, despite all evidence to the contrary there are there are tribal leaders and we chose them more or less and so we trust them i just think that's human nature and i think we always have to fight i think rationality always has to be at battle with our lizard brains and with human nature
0: well tom i wanted to ask you about your work at um, the institute for policy innovation a particular aspect of it the fact that the institute for policy innovation exists is a statement in itself that there's an awareness that policy shouldn't be permanently fixed, that there's a constant need for vision and revision. Take us to the essence of what you're doing. How do you evaluate where innovation is needed? How do you develop innovation? Take us through the process that kind of governs what the Institute's about.
1: The way I describe this to people is sort of picture a wheel with a hub and spokes. And for us, the hub is economic growth. Economic growth is our reason for being. We're in the business of trying to advocate economic growth, foster economic growth, explain to people the importance of economic growth, and then all of the elements that contribute to economic growth are like the spokes coming out of that hub. So it's property rights, it's innovation, it's rule of law, trade, energy, intellectual property. We're big believers in the importance of patents and copyright and intellectual property and fostering innovation and economic growth and those sorts of things. So that's sort of our message discipline, how we decide whether we're going to work on something or whether we're not. We don't try to work on every issue. We don't work on issues of national defense and foreign policy, except to the degree that they touch one of those things. Because we really do believe that economic growth is not the solution to everything, but it covers a multitude of sins. As we dis- as we discussed earlier, you can grow your way out of a debt problem. You can grow your way out of a welfare state problem over time. If your If your economy is growing faster than your debt, you don't really have a problem. If your debt's growing faster than the economy, you have a problem. So we're really, really interested in economic growth. And I I do think that innovation is the core of economic growth. And so the the question is, as you rightly asked it, and as you rightly formulated it, what are the elements that contribute to innovation? And here we come back to supply side, because we know know from history that innovation depends on an abundant supply of several things. It, It depends on an abundant supply of human capital just smart people with, with technological expertise. This is why innovation hubs tend to grow up around major universities, because they have a supply of really talented people. We also know that innovation depends on an abundance of capital. It's not by chance that the information revolution happened very shortly after the Reagan tax cuts in the 1980s. Because the Reagan tax cuts made available an abundance of risk capital that could be put to work. And companies like Intel and some of the semiconductor manufacturers and things like that all came out of that abundance of capital. We think the key to innovation is an abundance of human capital. We think it's an abundance of financial capital. We think it is an intellectual property regime that tells people that if you actually invent something useful that will be useful to society, that you will actually have the ability to yourself profit from it, that it can't be stolen from you. Your your patent can't be stolen from you. Your creative work can't be stolen from you. So we actually think that one of the most underappreciated areas of public policy is intellectual property. And and I think one of the keys to the US has been that we have a very robust intellectual property system in the US of patent protection and trademark protection and copyright and that sort of thing. And part, I, I would say the other element, to this idea of communicating to creators and inventors and innovators that if you're successful, you can profit from it is to have reasonable taxes and to not say to someone, you know what, if you actually do invent something massively useful and if you become rich as a part of it, we're not going to tax you at 90% of a marginal tax rate. Mm. So we, we want to say to innovators, you know what? If you actually do take out a second mortgage on your home and cash in all your credit cards and take all your retirement money and put it at risk for this new business you want to start or this new idea you want to foster, if you do happen to be successful, we want to reward that success and we want to guarantee you the protection of the rule of law. And we want to guarantee you your intellectual property protection. And we want to say to you that we will not make you poor again through tax policy. We will reward you rather than punish you for your innovation. I think those are the keys to innovation. And I think innovation is the key to the productivity growth that we spoke about earlier in the podcast.
0: You make some great points. I remember talking to Nathan again, The you know once those marginal tax rates get higher and higher, I mean, my wife and I built a, a very successful media business in the education space here, and I remember the day that I told her we were being taxed at forty-five percent, and she just went pale. She hadn't really realised that close to half of of what we were creating was being appropriated. And uh, you know, Nathan makes that great point that sooner or later, that it, when innovators and entrepreneurs and business people realise that. There's just not as much incentive to work that hard.
1: And it happens at the margin. That's a key. I'm sorry that we didn't mention this earlier. One of the key ideas of supply side economics is that all these things happen on the margin. All these things happen at the decision. Shall I make an additional dollar of investment? Should I put forth an additional dollar of spending? Should I put forth an additional amount of labor? Or is there no incentive for me to do so? everything interesting that happens in the economy happens at the margin. So if you're being taxed at 47%, you're not going to stop working completely. You mm. because you can't, but you might not put forth that additional extra effort, it happens at the margin, it doesn't happen at the first dollar that you earn, or the first unit of productivity that you produce, it happens at the last dollar that you earn, or the last bit of productivity that you earn. And so our focus should always be on the marginal impact of those kinds of decisions. And that's why it's a mistake, for instance, for governments to say, you know what we're going to do? We need to stimulate the economy. So we're going to send every household a check for $600. That has no marginal impact. Now I'm happy to get a check from my government if they want to send it to me. But that has, no, that, that has no marginal impact on the decisions that I'm going to make. I'm not going to, that doesn't encourage me to work harder. That doesn't encourage me to make an additional investment. It doesn't encourage me to go out and get a, another degree or anything like that. It, it, that doesn't incentivize at the margin. So we always want to think about how can we get people to make more productivity, more saving more investment more labor more whatever at the margin it's always the marginal effects that we should look at so in your example you don't focus on the fact that you only pay an eight percent income tax on your first ten thousand dollars of earning you focus on the fact that you pay a 47 percent rate marginal rate on your last hundred dollars of earnings right that's where the marginal effects take place
0: i wanted to ask you something else related to all of this tom i read a brilliant biography of uh, rockefeller about a year ago called Titan I think it's kind of the seminal biography and then I joined a few dots and I want to ask you about this back when people like Rockefeller and Standard Oil and Carnegie and and all those guys were you know the gilded age all of these capital expenditures all of this wealth was yes being put into amazing mansions and things but it was also providing huge amounts of jobs huge amounts of infrastructure so that money was being ploughed back into the economy. My my understanding is that the difference we face at the moment is that companies, for example, with Apple being the preeminent one, is that they're sitting on vast piles of cash with much smaller workforces. So they're not hiring people like Standard Oil or Carnegie's you know, empire was. There's, they're hiring a very small subsection of the population. They're sitting on enormous amounts of cash, share buybacks, Are we seeing a big difference here is this problematic I'm I'm not invested in this I'm just curious that are are we seeing a kind of problem here where innovation and technology is leading to a kind of stagnation
1: there's an economist at George Mason University named Tyler Cowan who essentially makes this argument that contrary to what people might think we're not actually seeing a ton of innovation broadly across the economy right now we're only seeing it in a few very narrow areas and i think that's probably right but do i view this as a problem no as a proponent of free market laissez-faire capitalism and free enterprise i don't believe that i have an obligation to defend any particular slice in time of an economy because so so yes it is absolutely true that companies like apple and other companies are sitting on enormous hordes of cash right now apple i think has more money In the bank than the total GDP of something like 75 countries or something like that. I mean, it's really astonishing. But I I don't see it as a problem. And if it is a problem, then what the supply sider would say is we're not giving them adequate incentive to invest that money. We're not giving them adequate options to invest that money to put that money to work. And so you would look and you would say, for instance, are we making mergers too difficult that these companies don't want to go out and acquire other companies and be subject to antitrust scrutiny. Again, if you think it's a problem, and I don't, but if you think it's a problem, what the supply side would say is, okay, well, let's take a look and see why do they not have an incentive to put that money to work? What are those factors that are causing that? And let's address that because these companies are rational players in the market. And if there were good places to put that money to work, they would put that money to work. They have no incentive. They have no rational incentive to malinvestment. There's no rational reason why they would poorly invest their money. Either they're not poorly investing their money, we just think they are, or there's some structural problem that is not providing them with adequate places to put that money to work. You see countries now that are doing things like negative interest rates and things Mm -hmm. like that. The real challenge is not to roll our eyes and talk about how crazy is this. The real question is to say, why? Why are banks essentially charging people to save their money there. What is going on here? And again, from a supply side standpoint, if there's an abundant supply of something, why is it not being put to work? I think that a major factor right now is literally policy instability with governments. These companies don't know what's gonna happen to them when the next administration comes in. They don't know if somebody is gonna come after them on antitrust. They don't know, Apple doesn't know if somebody is gonna come after them on, on privacy. They don't know if the EU is going to come after them and say, you've not been paying adequate taxes, we're going to change our, our tax regime. Google doesn't know if the EU is going to come along and hit them with a $50 billion fine for some reason. And so I tend to think that these very same companies that you might describe as sort of forming the new Gilded Age, they're the very companies that are the most subject to dramatic swings and getting yanked around by governments and by policy. I would like to think as a supply-sider that if we had anything approaching stability in policy, regulatory policy and tax policy, some portion of that money would be being put to work. I don't know how much it would be, but some portion of it would be being put to work. But again, I want to emphasize this because I think it's important. Economies are information processing computers, essentially, like we talked about earlier. And so if you don't like the result you're getting from the computer, don't blame the computer. Look and figure out why you're not getting the result that you think you ought to be getting. And just because that a market is not delivering the result you think it should deliver, doesn't mean there's something wrong with the market. It might be that you're wrong. You look at a market and say, there's not enough competitors in this market or whatever. So we need to do some sort of big antitrust action or something. Well, you know what, maybe you're wrong. <laughs> you know, Just, just because a market is delivering a different answer than the one you would prefer to see, doesn't mean there's a market failure it might just be that you're wrong. I tend to think that markets are smart and governments are stupid. I'm much more inclined to think that the result that a market is delivering is the correct answer and that the government is wrong rather than vice versa.
0: Because it's pretty low-hanging fruit for a politician, isn't it? To basically to get on a major network and rail against a particular company, it's, it's not a particularly difficult task, is it?
1: if you're a very wealthy, successful company, they're coming for you. There's just no doubt about it. It happened to IBM in the 1970s. It happened to Microsoft in the 1990s. It's starting to happen now to the tech giants, Amazon and Google and Facebook and Twitter. If you're very successful and very wealthy, they're coming for you. They're coming for their pound of flesh. There's there's just no doubt about it. It's stunning to me because when you look like at Amazon, for instance, when you look at the incredible benefit to consumers, that Amazon is delivering, there's rarely a day that goes by that we don't get an Amazon delivery at my house. <laughs> one thing or another yeah, guilty uh, guilty. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, they, they, they deliver incredible value to consumers. Only government would have a problem with that. Mm. You know, only government would have a problem with that people love Amazon, they love they love signing up and taking on those Amazon Prime accounts and things like that. It's a tremendous boon to consumers but sure enough here comes government coming after them because again it goes back to this thing i think where government has an incentive to look after its own interests as opposed to the interest of the people i don't get a dollar from amazon just for the record but to me amazon delivers such an incredible amount of value to consumers you would never have consumers rising up and screaming about amazon but sure enough you have government doing it
0: so let me ask you a couple of final questions one is i'm interested in the possible restoration of stable money. Over the last few weeks, I, I run ultra marathons and I listen to a huge amount of stuff. So I listened to Jim Rickard's latest book, which was 13 hours, and he finishes with about seven or eight possible outworkings of currency collapse and what might take its place. Yesterday, I finished listening to George Gilder's uh, The 21st Century Case for Gold, and he's arguing for a, a currency basket sort of. Idea possibly with gold and Bitcoin involved just just quickly. What do you do you see the restoration of a gold standard? How do you see this? MMT stuff working out long term.
1: I kind of think we're doing MMT now even though we don't <laughs> even though we, we don't think we are, I kind of think we're doing it right now. I don't believe there's any hope of ever returning to a gold standard. I think the best we could hope for is, as we discussed earlier in the podcast, linking currency to some standard, just something real, like a basket of commodities. And that's one of the reasons I, I have been so discouraged lately that President Trump's appointee Judy Shelton did not make it onto the Federal Reserve Board. Judy is one of the most brilliant economists out there she is a proponent of both the gold standard and the idea of a basket of commodities getting judy shelton on the board of the federal reserve would have been one of the most important accomplishments of the trump administration but of course it it got shot down and it got shot down because you mentioned earlier the federal reserve having a couple thousand you know phd economists the federal reserve is a almost like a, a training center in and of itself for Keynesian economics. You get a PhD, you get to work for the Federal Reserve, you get completely inculcated in the idea of Keynesian economics and big government. And then you leave the Federal Reserve, you go get another job in government or you get a job in corporate America or something. The Federal Reserve, I'm not a big conspiracy theory, deep state kind of a guy, but the Federal Reserve is is one of the most insidious institutions in the world for this reason. Because It has an interest in and of itself of maintaining its power and control over the economy and expanding its control over the economy. Anyone who would be the slightest bit disruptive to that, like Judy Shelton, has to be taken down. It's a great loss that Judy Shelton does not get to contribute her perspective and expertise to the Federal Reserve. I think the Federal Reserve is the problem. I think quantitative easing has made the Federal Reserve an even bigger player in the economy, even more dangerous. Anyone who looks at the balance sheet right now, the Federal Reserve would would just basically just leave trembling from that experience. The Federal Reserve is the locus of any major collapse that we will have economically because of Federal Reserve policy and because both Congress and the White House have basically allowed the Federal Reserve to do whatever it wants to do. And politically, they become dependent on the Federal Reserve, right? Because you want low interest rates politically. Every president wants low interest rates, you know. Congress wants low interest rates. They don't want anybody who's going to break up the party.
0: And the Fed's not accountable to Congress anyway, right? So my understanding is that to this day, the actual nature of the ownership of the Fed is still unknown. Like, people assume it's the big banks, but we, we don't actually know who owns the Fed, right?
1: It's an independent agency. Libertarians for years, Senator Rand Paul in particular for years, has been campaigning to simply audit the Fed. Should the Federal Reserve not be subject to a to a public audit? Why? Why not? What, what are you trying to hide? And we can't get something as simple as an audit of the Federal Reserve. Just show us what's on your balance sheet. Just show us what you have. Just show us the assets. Show us the liabilities. And we can't get it done. So, yeah, I I think the Federal Reserve is is a huge problem. Everyone has an incentive in keeping the party going. When I was a teenager, interest rates, mortgage interest rates were 19% or whatever. In a period of three years, Paul Volcker at the Federal Reserve got inflation completely under control. Interest rates dropped from 19% to 5%. Now, it took putting the country in a recession to accomplish that, but it was worth it and it was important. So that's an example of the power for good that the Federal Reserve actually has. But you have to have people on the Federal Reserve Board that are courageous, that believe in sound money, that want to do the right thing. And unfortunately, there's nobody on the Federal Reserve Board right now that believes in in anything approaching sound money. So sadly, I think it will take, as, as most things in life, I'm afraid it will take a crisis to Give us any chance of rebooting and resetting things and putting things back on the right path. Again, that sort of goes back to human nature. We tend to, we tend to not try to initiate change unless we're forced to.
0: Are you bullish on gold? Like over 5,000 years of history, it, it keeps reestablishing itself after every crisis. Are you, are you bullish on gold?
1: I don't, I don't give investment advice, I'm not smart enough to give investment advice. I do certainly believe that gold should be part of everyone's portfolio, some percentage. I actually own a tiny, tiny little bit of cryptocurrency, tiny little bit of Bitcoin and tiny little bit of Ether. I think it makes sense just for diversification yeah. to, to have a little bit of money in cryptocurrency. Not a lot. It seems to me the last time I ever looked at these kind of recommendations, people say you should have like 10% or 15% of your assets in gold or something like that. Jim Rogers, who you mentioned earlier, is a big believer in this idea of owning and investing in real things rather than just paper, whether that's you know a share in an REIT on a shopping center or whether that's a share in timberland or assets of various kinds, I think that it's a, especially in a time of instability it's a terrible mistake for all of your saving and investment to be tied up in in paper assets that have no connection to anything real
0: warren buffett calls it a pet rock
1: <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> I, uh, I just uh, I, I beg to differ with the with the wizard of uh, omaha now last question this is a real favorite of mine so tomorrow morning your phone rings you answer the phone and it's president elect biden and he says tom i heard you on this podcast it was great well done and then he says we want to rebuild the entire U.S. monetary and fiscal system policy. We want to fix the economy. Give me three recommendations. What do you tell him?
1: Well, the first would be let's get on a 10-year glide path toward a stable currency. And let's not do it all at once. Let's do it over 10 years. Let's create it. Let's create a basket of commodities. And let's, and let's gradually, incrementally, year by year, work our way toward a stable currency that would be the first thing i think the second thing would be let's do entirely away with all depreciation in the tax code all of it so that anyone who invests any any business who invests any amount of money in growth is able to immediately deduct it that year off of their taxes now that will mean that some companies don't pay any taxes some years because of the level of investment you want to stimulate investment and going back again to norman terray there's no reason why a dollar of productivity should be taxed more than once. So let's encourage them to invest. So that would be number two. And I think number three, oddly enough, oddly enough, would be let's extend the life of patents from 15 years to 20 years. Let's give creators and innovators even more additional incentive to profit from their creations and innovations because if the U.S. economy is going to continue to be globally dominant and competitive, we're going to be the people who create and invent things, not the people who make things. And so if you're a creator and an inventor, I want you to move to the United States and I want you to build your plant, your research lab, everything here. I want you to incorporate it in the United States and I want to give you the most robust, property rights in your invention and in your creation that you could get anywhere on the earth and i think those are the kinds of they're not sexy none of those three things are sexy but they are structural changes that would have ripples going out 20 and 30 years from now and you notice none of those three things had anything to do with restraining government spending i think we ought to do that too it's remarkably easy actually to balance the budget if you just if you were to reduce federal spending by like, if you would restrict the growth in federal spending for like by like half of 1% per year, you balance the budget like in 10 years. The problem has never been not enough revenue. The problem is too much spending. But if I only got to push three buttons, they would all be related to stimulating economic growth and innovation.
0: So good. Uh, it's interesting as you said that, like in the first episode we did, Nathan talked about you know, how, how do you deal with the deficits and the spending? And he said, well, as a thought experiment, he said, you'd literally just, the federal government would just say, right, as of next Tuesday, there's no more federal programs, nothing, gone, all of it, and push everything back to the states. And then it was a fascinating discussion just to see, you 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 would see huge amounts of population mobility as people move to different areas and mm-hmm. just fascinating mm-hmm. as, you, as you decentralize that decision making. But look, those three are fantastic and uh, I've learned a huge amount and I, I i can't wait to have you back and just go deeper on other topics but uh, i'm going to point people to the two fantastic podcasts you guys are doing at the moment uh, which i've been listening to and i really want people to get connected to those so we're going to put a bunch of links to connect everybody but Tom, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your wisdom and, uh, and just for sharing so many insights with us today on the Supply Side podcast.
1: You know, this has been one of the most intellectually satisfying conversations I've had in a long time. So I, I thank you for having me. I have very much enjoyed it.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Tom. Well, hey, everybody. Jonathan back with you again. I really hope you enjoyed that wonderful discussion with Tom Giovanetti there from the Institute for Policy Innovation. Now, make sure you check out their website, ipi.org. Easy to remember, ipi.org. If you want to get some regular content on all the big issues uh, that we've discussed in this episode, then make sure you check out the website. And they're doing some great podcasts as well. So if you're always looking for great content, any podcast, Platform will have access to the IPI podcast. So check those out. uh, That's it from me for this episode. Please, once again, make sure that you've hit that subscribe button, that you're sharing this with people. We're going to have some really great guests coming up in the next few episodes. So you can find out everything else about me, about what we're doing at SupplySidePartners.com. SupplySidePartners.com. You can sign up there to get regular notifications when the episodes come out. But uh, listen, thanks for your time thanks for taking the journey with us i hope we brought you some value in this episode my name is jonathan doyle this has been the supply side podcast and we'll have another episode for you very soon